0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Beyond the Surface podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. I started this podcast because I love finding out people's stories. And within those stories, there are all kinds of good nuggets about their mindset, how they look at the world, how they see the world, and how their mindset impacts their performance. So we dive deep into how people prepare and how they prepare to perform and what their mindset is along the way. So with that, I'd like to introduce Howard Beck to the Beyond the Surface podcast. Howard is a sports journalist for Bleacher Report, previously worked for the New York Times, Los Angeles Daily News, covering the Los Angeles Lakers, the New York Knicks, he even covered the Brooklyn Nets. And I think one of the cool things about Howard's story is he covered these players, he covered these teams, he covered these organizations, and really got an insight into the culture that existed in each of them. Specifically with the Lakers, they won championships, and he got to be around guys like Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal, but you'll find in our conversation... A lot of what Howard really appreciated was the sporting cast and the human element of all of those teams. I think often when we see sports and sports figures and sports teams, we lose the human element and we see these guys who are larger than life and we forget that there's a human component to their performance. So I really enjoyed learning from Howard and listening to Howard and get his perspective on what he saw because he had a front row seat to what these guys did on a daily basis. I also enjoyed Howard's story, his journey. It wasn't a typical sports journalist path. And as you find out, I went to Syracuse with a lot of people who are now working for ESPN and for the Washington Post and for places like the New York Times. Instead, Howard carved his own journey intentionally or unintentionally. And I think part of him carving that journey is what has made him successful. So I really enjoyed that he had an unorthodox way to get to where he is today, and how he often felt in awe of some of the places he was working at, and how special that experience was for him. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Howard Beck as we go beyond the surface, and I hope you go beyond the surface with yourself as well. And I'd like to cue our music, which is from Josh Glazer, and I appreciate Josh for supplying us with some awesome music. Hope you enjoy that, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Howard, why don't you start just start with your journey, start with your upbringing, what it was like for you. Uh, I know you grew up, I think, in California. So tell me a little bit about what th- your household was like and your family and the dynamic at home.
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. So I'm um, middle child of three brothers, uh, grew up so in a household of five in uh, suburban San Jose, California, and, uh, you know, led the kind of standard typical uh suburban california kid life um you know uh played around the neighborhood played a lot outdoors um you know the first house we were in didn't have its own pool but the next house we were in when i moved when we were when i was 10 did have a pool so that was that was a big deal uh, uh so love being outdoors a lot love the pool um and uh You know nothing. Yeah, there's there's nothing particularly exciting or out of the ordinary. I don't think about the uh, the childhood phase of uh, of my uh, my upbringing. Um, But you know, when we eventually get to the you know where the the beginnings of the sports uh, career and sports writing career go, there's you know that's that's mixed in there somewhere. We'll get to that. So the
0: one thing that does interest me is I am one of three boys. And I also suffer from middle child syndrome, and it has been uh, something I've been dealing with for a long time, but I've come to grips with my middle child syndrome. Was there fighting? Uh, What's the age differences between you and your brothers? Was there competitiveness? Uh, Walk me through that dynamic.
1: So my older brother's four years older, younger brother's two years younger, and yes, middle child syndrome uh, to the core, Jan Brady uh, to the core. it was, you know, we were all distinctly different personalities, I think, uh, and and mostly remain. So, I mean, there's a lot in, in common between the three of us. But, I, you know, as, as interests go, as personalities went, as, as kids, I think we were all pretty different. And uh, for me, you know, my older brother's four years older, so there was a massive gap between him and me. And then a very small gap in a lot of ways between me and my younger brother, uh, who was only two years younger, and then a, a very large gap, of course, between them at six years. So what would happen uh, from the perspective of the put-upon middle child is uh, I would get kind of shunted off with my younger brother and my, you know, you know uh, privileges. Like, you know, what time I had to go to, to bed or, or my allowance or whatever were always much closer or even identical to my younger brother. So I never got any advantages of, of, of age. That was something that I, I remember always, you know, being quite – Cognizant of as a kid that uh, my older brother Jeff uh, had distinct advantages, and you know there was very little separation between me and my younger brother. And when it came to you know just playing as kids, you know there was a time there probably where the three of us played. But it, you know when you're four years older, you know and you're in you know tenth grade, and I'm still in sixth, and my younger brother's in fourth. You know the differences between my older brother Jeff's interests at that point and and mine. Um, it's a gap so I spent more time with my younger brother than my older brother by far and uh, yeah you know it played out in all in all kinds of ways and um, it's uh, it, it was definitely I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in birth order I don't know where you as a psychologist or as a middle child survivor uh, are on all of that but I grew up very cognizant of it all and it got to the point even where when stories about middle children and then the disappearance of middle children as people all went to the the, the two child household. I I was aware of all of it. People were like sending me those stories in newspaper form when I was still a kid. Um, so yes,
0: I like to say that I thrived from being a middle child, not survived, but that's a story for another day. And tell me about mom and dad and, and what they're like, maybe values learned, uh, growing up. And what were some of the common themes that were discussed in your household?
1: Um, so my dad, uh, during his his working years, uh, his career was a, a sales exec for a, a series of uh, mostly technology firms, um, and these are in the early early days of Silicon Valley. So a bunch of companies that, that don't even exist any longer. Uh, a lot of telecommunications and a lot of just the the early tech stuff in the in the seventies uh, and eighties. Um, and my mom was stay at home mom for um, a good chunk of, of my younger years. And then eventually she went back to work, uh, working for a market research firm in the Bay area. And, uh, so, you know, I mean, I think on a very basic level, you know, we certainly learned, you know, work ethic and and then, you know, the, the value of, of, of work and commitment to a career from, from both of our parents. And, um, in terms of, you know, just, uh, you know I don't know would you said themes or or other uh you know things imparted i don't know that that's a hard thing to pin down um like it's not it's not something that I spent a lot of time you know thinking about probably as they were bringing us up um the values instilled I feel like most of that was. You know, I know like some families, like there's all these little truisms, you know, like, well, my dad always said, and there's always these throwaway lines. We never, I don't remember them ever like, you know, having any of those, like the kinds you'd like pull out of some book of idioms or something. Um, Is there
0: a story or a moment that you can remember that was a big teaching point for you, uh, that, that has guided you or impacted you?
1: Um, again, great question. Again, the kind of thing that I probably have never like, uh, consciously mold so um how about this do you remember a time
0: where you, were, where you were where you're punished and uh you know usually punishment the purpose of it right or wrong is to teach a lesson um, right and so any anything come to mind there were you just an angel kid that you know what didn't get in yeah.
1: trouble and probably not an angel uh <laughs> had a, had a foul mouth from an early stage so they had to try to smack that out of me um no bars of soap uh there was a bar of soap incident yes there was there was one of those i think they regretted it i was uh, just
0: talking to my mom about that my mom was the bar of soap person i got it twice and i was saying to her the other day i'm like i don't think bar of soap is cool anymore i don't
1: no <laughs> that went sure. out with that went out with corporal punishment and everything else <laughs> Um, and I, there were, there were a few of those moments, I don't need to go into the details, but there were a few of those moments where I think, because that was, that was the child rearing, uh, methodology of the era, um, the literal bar of soap and the spankings and everything else. And I, I can think of at least a couple moments, which again, I don't want to go into, you know, on a podcast, but where I think they immediately regretted it and did not go down that road again. Um, So, you know, in in my own adult life now as a parent, you know, those are certainly influential for me in terms of the way that my wife and I, you know, raising our own daughter and and we don't, you know, engage in any of those uh, old school methods. Um, I think they've probably faded out for a reason. Um, And I don't think they were particularly effective and it certainly uh, didn't. didn't cure me of the f word, um, and you know, frankly, the funny thing—the funny thing there is that you get older and you start having you know more adult discussions with your parents when you get into later high school years or college, and then they're dropping f bombs too, and you're like, well, you know, why the fuck were you like punishing me for you know saying it you know ten years ago? It's you know, so uh, so for our own daughter, it's like you know if she's heard us say it, like she gets very uh, you know she doesn't like hearing us use those words, like it's it's, it's role reversal now. But we've just kind of explained to her, like, these are words that are in the world. and like, we live in Brooklyn. You're going to hear this stuff on the street every day. And she has since she was small. So our our message has just been, you know, there's a time and place uh, where it's appropriate or not appropriate and who you can use it around and places that you can't and don't do it at school. But, you know, I don't even have to worry about it because, you know, those words are so, like, potent to her that that she herself is offended by them. So she's she's not about to use them. Although that will probably change as she gets into her teen years, I guess.
0: I'm smiling because we have a one-year-old and we have another one on the way and my wife grew up they her her mom would curse and like you know my wife is probably like one of the best kids you can imagine growing up like she was an angel from her mom's perspective but uh my family cursing was not okay like it was it was definitely something that was not okay. We were brought up like you're not in the house, you know, like in, in, in certain situations where you're just not cursing. But to your point, like my wife's like, so what? If you curse, I'm like, no, you don't curse in front of the one-year-old. But like the one-year-old doesn't need us to pick up any of this stuff. So anyway, yeah. um, so all right. How about there's two things that I wanted to dive deep a little bit with you. Number one is obviously the where writing came from how that became a passion for you and the journey. Um, And then also anyone that follows you on Twitter knows that you're very politically conscious. And um, so if I hadn't seen that on Twitter, I live in Washington DC, so I'm always very hesitant to bring up politics because it's everywhere and it becomes very annoying. But um, I'm wondering where the passion for writing and I think the social consciousness for yourself came from because as I said, if, if anyone follows you on Twitter, which I'm sure a lot of people that are going to listen to this do, that's something I've been curious about is like, where does the, the sort of political or social consciousness come from? And then I also want to find out more about your journey in writing and in your career and, and all the twists and turns that have. You know. Yeah. Um,
1: you know, the writing thing, uh, is interesting. Um, I don't know when exactly that really began to click. I mean, I can remember in sixth grade at Blossom Valley Elementary in San Jose um, that w- the whole class got a writing assignment that was tied to a contest sponsored by the San Jose Mercury News, my hometown newspaper, that was um, in this and oddly, you know, in a weird way ties into your other question. The, the theme of these essay writing contest for I guess it was sixth graders or, you know, 10 and 11 year olds or whatever it was. The theme was what makes America great, <laughs> and the sponsors of this essay writing contest were the, the Mercury News. I, th- I think they were a co-sponsor and Great America, the theme park, uh, which is you know in, in Santa Clara. <clears throat> and I loved Great America. Uh, I certainly knew what made made Great America great. Um, it's great roller coasters. Uh, and as a kid, um, you know, you get this writing assignment, and I, for the life of me, I cannot remember what I wrote. I just remember that I was one of the hundred kids or something that got like an honorable mention. I didn't win. I didn't get second or third, but of the, you know, X number of kids got an honorable mention and you got four free passes to go to the great America, uh, like a couple hours before the park opened and and all this stuff. And so like, that's, you know, maybe there's something there where that was like the, the positive reinforcement, um, or just the, the sense that, Oh, okay, I, I can, I can write, you know, pretty well for my age or something. Um, and then, You know, the next thing after that that's significant, Um, you know, I'm in high school. uh, I was well advanced in math. I was two years ahead of math, and I always thought that was the path I was going down. Um, I got a much higher score on my math side of the SAT than the verbal. Uh, I was taking what they called computer math back in those days, which was like some, you know, rudimentary programming. Um, And I was I was taking college level calculus as a junior in high school. And I thought that was the path was um, computer engineering, something like that. And I'm growing up in San Jose and Silicon Valley. So, you know, of course, that's that's ever present. Um, but I burned out and I just lost it. Didn't didn't uh, have you know? It's, at some point all the love I had for, for math and uh, being advanced in math and having that be a, a sense of pride. It just I don't know exactly how or ex- the, the moment when, but somewhere in that junior year of high school, it was I. I lost it. Um, so didn't, didn't want to do it anymore.
0: Anytime I hear burnout because I work with a lot of high school athletes, the first question after that goes to parents. Oh, yeah. did your parents play a role? Were they, were they like saying, Howard, you're good at math. Like, you know, this is the path for you or is, is it a path that you felt like you chose? Or is it a path that you said, I'm good at this. So I'm just going through the motions of doing what people that are good at something do.
1: It was probably both. Um, I I do recall them being pretty assertive with, you know, my teachers in saying, you know, uh, you know, hey, you know, he's you know, this is what he did last year. This is what he did at his last school because we had we had switched schools um, uh, at the end of fifth grade um, because we moved across town. And so it was just in a different zone. And excuse me. So they were certainly assertive about letting them know. You know, he's already done this, this and this. So he should be at this level. And so, you know, I know that they were they were active in that. And I know that that was something they encouraged me a lot on. I don't know if they necessarily were pushing me in that direction. I don't recall it that way. I think it was just more like this was my uh, natural inclination. This was something that I had a head for. And, and I really liked it for, for a lot of those years. I mean, you know, I loved doing algebra and, and geometry and, um, you know, it, it was everything all the way up until calculus. Maybe it was calculus itself or maybe just the stage I was at in terms of my age and other interests, whatever it was. Um, the combination of computer math and calculus that junior year, I just remember feeling like this isn't it anymore. And I, I had a very binary uh view i think of academics at the time like i never thought of like oh you could you know go off to college and become a psychologist or um, you could go off and become you know a marine biologist or any of these other things I, I i had this kind of binary uh view of like math versus writing maybe it's because that's the way the sat is set up whatever it was but at the moment that i burned out on math i immediately turned to writing as the possibility and and part of that was it was at that same you know, span of years when I really got into sports, the, the, the 49ers in particular. Um, and I've, I've said many times that, you know, I can trace my sports writing career back to the cash, Joe Montana to Dwight Clark. And in, in the 1982 NFC championship game was like this seminal moment for me as a kid, I was 13 years old and it was like this mind blowing dramatic play, uh, by my favorite team. And it was the year that I I'd really gotten hooked on, on watching them religiously. And, um, and so then I started, you know, around that time reading, devouring the sports section of, of the San Jose Mercury News every morning. So now that's what I'm immersed in. And, and at some point during that span of time and people are saying, well, what are you going to, you know, do when you go off to college? What do you want to study? What do you want to major in? What do you want to do with the rest of your life? And you're 16, 17 years old trying to weigh these these massive decisions Uh and, uh, and, and I remember feeling like a massive weight at the time, like, oh my God, I have to make this decision, I have to apply and then I have to decide what I'm going to study and that's going to determine the rest of my life. But it's, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous uh, way of, of looking back on it now, but that's how it felt. Um,
0: a little ahead and, of your time in that sense. And I think we're, we are very bad as a society on generalizing gener generations. Uh, I like, it drives me crazy. Um, and I think one of the things that you hear now is like parents are so obsessed with their kids going to a certain college, and kids are so obsessed with kids going to a certain college. And it's interesting that you can. Uh, I'm doing the the math in my head now, and and I'm probably not as I don't i never was one to say that I had a head for math. But so we're talking about you know 19. 86, you know, 1987, uh, you know, when, when you start to look into that decision and you remember that being a a massive decision on where you're going to go to school.
1: 86 was my, uh, freshman year of college, my graduating year from high school. Um, so, you know that this thought process is going on there between like you know 1982 the nfc championship game the catch and you know 1985 or so or 84 even when you're starting to um think about colleges and you're starting to get all that stuff in the mail and you're having to go through the sat process and all that stuff um so yeah it's, it's all during that time and so if you that coincides with on the on the the passion for sports and the 49ers and reading the the, the newspaper every day that coincides with on the other side, the, you know, all of a sudden, you know, uh, falling into burnout on, on math, which I thought had been my direction. And so somewhere in there, the light bulb goes on uh, that, you know, there are these people who are paid to go watch games and write about them. And I thought that sounds stupid, you know, uh, that somebody can, can do this as a career. So I thought, well, that, that sounds kind of cool. Like stupid,
0: uh, like stupid, cool.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> like it's ridiculous that somebody gets paid to do this. And of course that's how people feel about my job. They, 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 you know, they think it's ridiculous. I get paid to do this and it probably is. Um, but, but that's, you know, that's the light bulb that goes on at that moment. And, um, uh, and so when, when it's okay, where are you applying and what are you going to do? Then I started thinking, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to college somewhere and I'm going to try to, you know, write for the college paper and, um, and maybe I'll be a sports writer. You know, I you know, Mark Purdy was the, the, the Mercury news sports columnist who was like the guy I grew up on. And I thought he was just phenomenal. And I'm like, I want to, like, that became like, just as people in LA grew up on Jim Murray, wanted to be Jim Murray. I wanted to be Mark Purdy. Uh, I've told him this, it embarrasses the hell out of him. Um, so shout out to Mark Purdy. Um, But, uh, that's, that's, that's how it went. That's literally how it unfolded in my own head. And and And,
0: I want to hit the pause button because did you play sports growing up? Like, obviously you have this moment in the 49ers history that stuck with you and you're like, gosh, I want to be able to capture moments like that. But where did before that, I know you said you sort of had a normal suburban play and, you know, run around, but What 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 sports were you into? What sports were you introduced to? And just walking Uh,
1: through that on the on the unorganized side of it, a lot of the you know uh, you know touch football in the in the street um, and sometimes tackle football on the the nearest grass field or or somebody's front lawn. Um, So you know I I did love playing like you know like just those those little neighborhood pickup football games. Friend of mine uh who lived a few doors down had a basketball uh net. We had one too, actually. But my friend uh Patrick Munoz, his father was had been a basketball, a youth basketball coach. And so I remember like, you know, learning he was trying to teach me to dribble with both hands and to shoot and everything. Like he was really trying to to, to coach me. This is when I was like, you know, six, seven years old. Um, so a lot of you know shooting in the driveway stuff. Did um, your older
0: brother was your older brother into basketball?
1: Older brother, uh Older brother and younger brother, both, uh, not particularly sports, uh, oriented. Um, and, uh, I'd like to say that I'm, I'm probably the most athletic of the three of us, but it's a very low bar. So it, it, it's a, it's a meaningless achievement. Um,
0: well that's where we
1: deviate
0: as a family because me and my two brothers, anytime we're on vacation, it probably comes up who's the best athlete. And, You know, I'm not going to get into that here, but that – like the three of us waged – we're two and a half years apart each, so we were closer. And, yeah. you know, f- fists, and maybe oh. maybe baseball bats, maybe hockey sticks. <laughs> uh, my younger brother <laughs> always seemed to be the goalie in whatever sport we played because we could pelt him. I mean it was uh, – for me, that's I think the – where we, Where our stories would probably deviate, because for me I mean we were just the three of us were all sports fanatic, sports crazed, and you name a sport my my parents at one point bought boxing gloves for us, uh, and my dad <laughs> would referee us, and he said, the only rule is you can't you can't bring out the boxing gloves when i 'm not home and of course, uh, anytime they 'd go out we 'd watch rocky and then we'd we'd just go to town on each other but enough, <laughs> enough about me and, and my my childhood and back to you. So, so you played unorganized sports, any organized sports, uh, as a kid. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So on the organized sports side, um, I think I was probably sixth grade when I started playing, uh, youth soccer did that for a few years. Seventh grade, I started running cross country, uh, in junior high. Um, also, uh, wrestled a little bit. Um, but that was only for about a year. Um, uh, running became my thing after a while. Soccer was good; it was fine. I was I was I, I was pretty fast for a kid. Like that was my one athletic asset. I had I had some decent speed, um, but um, I, I didn't know exactly how to use that speed to my advantage uh, playing soccer. But I did play for for a few years. I, it was fun, and I enjoyed it. Uh, and but uh, running became the thing: cross country, and then cross country and track in high school. to the mile and the two mile, um, and you know the one. Uh, the one thing I really wanted to do, and I played a couple of years of little league baseball too in like third and fourth grade, um, but you know all these things were like you know, quick phases. Like you know, one year of, of YBA basketball, a couple of years of baseball, and I was I was okay at all of them. But I just I think I just kind of kept moving on to the next thing. And were you um, curious? Were you a curious kid? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I would you know in a, in a general sense.
0: Yeah, well, I would just think that curiosity for a writer is probably. Pretty mandatory, um, so I find it interesting that you would try a sport like wrestling or you know baseball or cross country or track and, and you would just be open to new experiences because I think a lot of kids aren't uh, they, they sort of like to stay in their comfort zone and you know stay in that direction, but I find that yeah. to be of
1: note. It may also be that I was so incredibly average at any of these that none of them were, you know, none of them stuck because, you know, if I'd been like a great at little league baseball, maybe I would have stuck with baseball. You know, That's also a possibility. Um, But, uh, but I was, you know, I was decent enough at cross country and track and, uh, you know, I did stick with that through, uh, through high school. Um, And, uh, you know, enjoyed that. Um, I, I, I liked the solitary nature of, of, of a long run. Um, you know, I was out there with my 1980s arrow, uh, Walkman, uh, which kids, this is what uh, we used to have before iPhones and iPods or, uh, go Google, uh, Walkman and, and, uh, then see if you can find an actual scale photo of it next to a hand. And you'll see what I was trying to run with around the neighborhoods of San Jose. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I liked, you know, I would take those, you know, those, those long, like training runs or whatever. And then, uh, you know, cross country itself we would be out in, uh, there's a place in San Jose, Allen Rock Park, where they had all these, these high school cross country meets and it was just beautiful out there. And so you're out there like on a, a cold fall or winter morning and running through the Hills. And uh, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, that was, so that was, that was, that was my athletic career probably. Cause that ended after after high school, I didn't really uh, continue.
0: So take me to college. Uh, where did you end up going? And, uh, I'm assuming studying journalism or what was the journey like in college?
1: Yeah. I actually, by the way, I, sh- I should say, um, I did try because football became my passion. I did try at one point I, I went out, uh, I had a couple friends on the football team in high school and the summer before my senior year, they said, you're fast. You love football. We've seen you catch, you know, you, 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 you should do this. Like, and so like, I, without telling my parents, I went out to double days for, for like a, a week and was the sorest I've ever been. And it was all pre, pre pads. Cause you had to get parental permission for the pads um so before pads i was doing all that and i was like i could hold my own like just speed wise with the other like wide receivers and, and defensive backs who were like in the drills um and i did it for about a week and then when it came time to get the pads i i, I bowed out um and which was probably the, the right thing because like i was you know uh you know 5 10 and uh, 110 pounds soaking wet or something and i would have gotten like uh, split in half probably
0: the reason why so, i'm i'm cracking up once again i The parallels in our stories and the subtle differences are just interesting to me. And I'm probably giving my childhood too much, but my friends in high school, a lot of them played football. And I would always, like Rudy had probably just come out and I was inspired and like wanted to be Rudy when I grew up. And uh, every summer, two-a-days would start and they'd be like, Brian, come on. I'm like, all right, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. 6 a.m. hit middle of the summer, five foot, nothing, 100, nothing wasn't happening. And, uh, so I actually never even made it. So I give you a lot of credit for, for, for making it a week because every year they'd be like, you coming, Brian? I'm like, yep, I think I'm, this is the year I'm coming out. And nope. I I think I like sleeping a little bit more. So anyway, all right, go to, go to college, take me to college.
1: Uh, UC Davis uh, it's uh, part of the UC system the uh, greatest public university system in the uh, history of the world according to the University of California um, picked there in large part for reasons that had nothing to do with academics I mean I, I it it, uh, it was about two hours from home so it's just far enough to feel like I was independent and just close enough to retreat or go back and see friends or be home for the holidays um, two-hour drive between between San Jose and, and Davis Um And, uh, and my older brother had gone there. Um, and I I guess for a long time up until that point, I, I was still copycatting everything that my older brother did. Um, so, and I'd been there because we'd visited him and it was a cool little college town and I just liked the vibe there. Um, there are no undergraduate journalism programs in the UC system uh, a couple of them I think UCLA and Berkeley have I think graduate programs in journalism but um, nothing in the undergrad it's it's kind of a, a UC snobbery thing that that's journalism's a trade, not a area of study um, so I studied English um, English seemed like the the next best thing um, you know, you're going to be reading a lot. You're going to be writing a lot. And uh, so that that was the deal. But my, my real college major, when it comes right down to it, I, I majored in the Aggie. The Aggie was the student newspaper, the California Aggie. And I spent more hours by far um, in the uh, in the basement of, uh, of one of the main uh, student halls on campus at, at the in the campus newsroom. Uh, I spent far more time there than I ever did, um, studying or probably even in class, which, uh, you know, every professor had at the time would attest to.
0: And at this point, is it purely writing or is there any interest in broadcast or radio or anything in in the communication space? Or is it, I love writing. I, you know, I like English and I like sports and I want to become the next newspaper, great newspaper writer.
1: Um, there was no thought whatsoever to TV radio. Um, I, I did once do, uh, they asked me to, to help out, uh, on a broadcast for like the campus radio station. They needed me to like help out with like, um, broadcasting one of the, the, the UCD basketball games one day on the road. And I was God awful. Um, but I hadn't even thought about it. Like broadcasting wasn't, wasn't the thing. It was writing. Uh, I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be a writer. Um, at that time, ESPN still is still in its infancy. You know, kids coming in now, or people growing up now, people come into the business now, ESPN's viewed as the pinnacle, and that that's the goal for everyone. Everybody wants to get there. That wasn't that wasn't the case. That wasn't the mindset. If you're growing up in the '80s um, as a sports fan, the the pinnacle is you know. If if you love your your hometown newspaper, if it's a, if it's a major paper, maybe it's you know that one, or if it, you know national papers, the LA Times, Chicago Tribune, Washington Post, New York Times, uh, those are the places that would be. Or for me, the ultimate would have been Sports Illustrated. I grew you know started getting Sports Illustrated when I was twelve, thirteen, and uh, have been a you know loyal subscriber uninterrupted ever since then um, to this day. So that you know those would have been the goals for me, uh, to be good enough to write for one of those publications. I, I never had any thoughts of, uh, being on TV or radio. I didn't think I had, uh, the, the face or the presence, uh, for, uh, for that particular path.
0: Well, this won't be, your face won't be on the podcast, so I think you're still okay there. Yeah. uh, Congratulations, listeners. Yeah. I'm, (laughs) that's, I have a, I have a double issue because I don't think I have the face for TV, but I, I also don't think I have the voice for, for a podcast, so. Uh, We'll see. This could be just a. a I think you've got
1: the. I think you've got a radio voice, actually. I think you've got like the. That's that's a good sports talk radio voice. I've been on a a bazillion sports talk shows in the last twenty years as an NBA writer, so I can tell you. I think I got a good ear for this now, Brian. I think you're selling your voice short at this point.
0: I'll tell you the reason why. I used to have an NBA draft website, and I went on sports talk radio in Portland, and I did the interview. (laughs) And afterwards, all everyone would call up and talk about was what that guy's voice sounds like he has like he's been smoking cigarettes for like 20 years. (laughs) And uh, so I've always had a raspy voice, which, you know, there's some good musicians who have raspy voices. So maybe I am onto something. Maybe you're right. Um, But let's go back to you. So uh, you graduate from there. And and where do you go? What, What do you do?
1: Uh, I graduated in 91, uh, during the first uh, Bush recession. And so jobs were difficult to to come by newspapers. And, and, you know, newspapers are constantly in this existential crisis of, you know, uh, you know, when's when's the end, the end is always nigh. And the end was was nigh then too. And people were talking about cutbacks, and there's no jobs. And um, I had sent off, you know, applications to, uh, you know, a bunch of big newspapers that I would have loved to have worked for coming out of college. And I probably overestimated myself a little bit and underestimated how uh, critical, um, contacts and, uh, you know, having a pathway in, uh, was the, the thing. And I would say this to anybody who's listening, who's, you know, considering journalism career, um, I don't, I don't think I regret not going to journalism school for any of the educational purposes. I think I got a great education of working at a student newspaper that published five days a week for my entire college career and, and just got a lot of reps in. Um, I don't think I missed anything on the education side. What I did miss, what I didn't understand or realize until many years later, is that the major north uh, major journalism schools like Northwestern and Columbia... Um, Syracuse. The, Syracuse, yeah. That's my uh, they, alma mater. i got to give them a little bit. <laughs> so those schools have... Uh, professors and directors of, of programs and everything else who are working journalists or former working journalists and know people in the field and have have these connections um, that their students then benefit greatly from. And I was going in blind just thinking, oh, well, I did pretty well. I got some, I won some college journalism awards. I, you know, we have a great newspaper and I pumped out all these stories and I, I thought some of them were pretty good. I thought that would be enough. I didn't realize that, you know, the, the, it's not what you know, it's who you know thing. I, I, I did not. I was very naive, too. Um, and so uh, my first job out of college was at the local paper, the Davis Enterprise. Uh, 10,000 circulation, small town daily, uh, six days a week. And, and for those uh, that don't
0: know, so I've driven yeah. by UC Davis on the way from San Francisco to Sacramento. But for those on the East Coast, especially who may not be aware of what that town looks like. Just paint that picture real quick.
1: So Davis, um, when I was there, was a town of about 50,000 may maybe up to like 60 now, um, about half of which is, is students and the campus itself. Um, you know, the campus absolutely, you know, dominates the identity of, of that town. And uh, it's uh, oft referred to, not completely and accurately as a cow town because we had actual cows. And uh, there were certain mornings where, you know, when the wind's blowing the right direction, uh, that's all you smelled. Um, and there, were, there was, in fact, there was a, a set of uh, dorms. The newest dorm complex back in the '80s had been built right next to the cow pastures, and so nobody wanted to go to those dorms. Uh, and I, avoid, I successfully avoided those dorms myself. So, um, to say
0: that, so to say that your first job is in a small market
1: is is I, pretty. It's accurate. a point. Yeah, a small market um, for sure. I mean, it's a t- I mean, look, Sacramento is 15 minutes up the road, and the Sacramento Bee is the dominant newspaper there and in that region, right? And we're two hours from the Bay Area, and there's the San Francisco Chronicle and all these other big papers. I'm in a, a city of 50,000 people working for a newspaper with a circulation of 10,000. And so, yeah, I mean, you can start smaller. There are weeklies out there, and there are much smaller towns all over uh, the U.S., but I started pretty small. Yeah. And at the time, that was a, a, a somewhat of a humbling experience because you have all these grand visions of yourself that, you know, come out of college. Like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to jump straight to the Sacramento Bee, or the San of Mercury News or something. Um, but, uh, you know, great learning experience. And, you know, now it's a point of pride. Like when I when I got to The New York Times in 2004, which is, you know, was a mind blowing moment at the time and remains so even in memory, um, And I think about having started at the Davis Enterprise and and I'm walking through those doors uh, of the times and thinking I'm willing to bet there's no one else who's gotten here from the Davis Enterprise. I don't even know if there's anybody else who's gotten here from UC Davis. Maybe there has been. Um, And it it just, you know, and you walk in that building and there were people from, you know, Columbia, Northwestern and Vanderbilt and Syracuse and Harvard and Yale and Princeton and everywhere else. And, you know, I'm feeling like, you know, this, you know, uh, you know, modest kid from South San Jose went to UC Davis and somehow ended up here. And, but you know, when, most of that time I couldn't, I still couldn't believe it.
0: What a sense of fulfillment that must be for you. And maybe pride, uh, pride's a big word, but can you explain the fulfillment or the pride that comes with starting where you started and having that moment properly where you walk through that door on, on day one? Is there, can you explain that? Can you put that into words?
1: It's hard to describe, other than saying that as you ask that and I think about it, I like I I literally start getting like chills uh, just just thinking about it again because that that moment was was just so huge. You don't know, you know. I mean, I'm sure there's there are people in this business who knew exactly where they were going or had a, like a clear vision and they said, I'm going to follow these steps one two three and I'm going to end up at you know ESPN or I'm gonna end up at the New York Times or i end up wherever. I, I didn't. I I just kind of put my head down and did whatever was in front of me. I, I was never one for that five or 10 year plan. You know, when people say you got to have goals, I, I, I'm like, okay, I guess I do. But um, I'm just trying to get this story out, you know? Um, how Howard, Howard, the more I do these interviews with people, um,
0: the more that is, that's the story is like, you know, every once in a while, I think someone will say, I had this vision, and that's what I was going to do, and I was going to do whatever it takes to get to where I wanted to go, and you know, that was the vision. But a lot of the conversations are people saying, I just put my head down, worked, and you know, just fell in love with that process of improvement and growing and, and trying to uh, harness my skills and sharpen the axe and work on my craft and improve and uh, a lot of those people will say like, but I was, they, they, their story along the way is, is filled with humility. And I think that's also something that I think we all lose sight of because we still have dreams, right? Like the kid in you is watching the Niners and saying, I want to cover the Niners, right? Like that's still the dream. But when you're in it, you're so focused on just putting out quality content that yeah. you're not planning out your life, you are, it's, it's more organic than that, which I think is really important for people to realize. Like I have moments when I'm working with certain athletes or certain teams where I'm like, what the heck, how did this happen? And yeah. it's those pinch me moments that are, that are fascinating. But I, I think it's, it's often not a straight line. It's often a windy road. So, um, yeah. so, so, so take me just your stops along the way. Can you can you give us the the stops along the way between Davis to New York and and just sort of walk us yeah. through
1: that? Yeah, the brief the brief run through the resume. So it's four years at the Davis Enterprise, which is longer than most people should spend at a small town daily if you have aspirations to be at, at bigger papers. But I was comfortable, and that was another you know you you could say a little bit of a fault of mine that I just I just liked where I was. Uh, my friends were there. Uh, Many of them were still in college a couple years or a year behind me, and so uh, I spent longer than I probably should have for career purposes there, but I was happy personally. Um, I also switched gears. I was, in, I was covering sports for the first year and a half or so at the, uh, the Davis Enterprise, and then I moved over to the City Desk and covered City Hall uh, in, a, in a town that was uh, incredibly politically active and politically conscious. That was a big beat and, and a fun one. Um, and at, at that time, again, I'll throw the, 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 burnout word out there. I was a little burned out on just covering like Davis high school, UC Davis football and whatever. It just, um, I, I kept thinking there's, there's more important things and, and, you know, what else can I do? And so I covered city hall for a couple of years, which I'd also done at the campus paper. So like I had a, a bit of a base of knowledge there and it's, I want to jump,
0: I want to tug on that a little bit. Cause I work in sports or predominantly in sports and I definitely have moments where I'm like. I'm all in and I'm like, want to win and compete and like, let's do it. And then I have other moments where I'm like, eh, it's sports. Yeah. Do you have that, do you have that push pull when, when you're, when you're covering what you need to cover and writing what you need to write
1: all the time, all the time. And the reason it happened at that stage was in part because, you know, um, I didn't have the dream job yet. I wasn't the Niners beat writer yet at the sounds of Mercury news. uh, And I wasn't Mark Purdy yet, but I was covering, you know, Davis high school and UC Davis. And, um, you know, there's a certain point where it's, you're going to, you know, these high school kids, these 16 year olds every day to to get quotes and and to try to do interviews. and, And it's not that there's not great stories to be told there. There are, but at that stage and I'm 22 myself or something, and they're not that much younger than me. And I'm thinking like, what do these kids have to tell me? You know, what story, like, maybe I wasn't, you know, being diligent enough to try to find the best stories, but also, you know, it's a daily paper and you're trying to just crank out and, and I'm jumping from one thing to the next one day. I'm writing about girls field hockey. The next day I'm writing about soccer. The next day I'm writing about, you know, whatever. I mean, we did, we covered Davis high school and UC Davis as if they were like our pro sports teams. Cause that was our market. And I think there was a, an aspect of it of just feeling like this ultimately is kind of trivial and, you know, what am I doing? How um, did you
0: get out of that? How did you like how did you shift your mindset to
1: keep plugging along i uh, during the time that I was covering sports there, I ended up um pitching a story to the to the news desk um and they had you know the people on the news side of, of the enterprise look this is not a big place. there's like you know five editors for the whole newspaper but the, the editor in chief and the and the and the city editor. Already knew me anyway from my work at the campus paper where I had covered a lot of city issues, and I had pitched them a story at one point while I was still doing sports, saying I want to write about this guy. There was um, this is the same, you know, period of time that the Rodney King beating had happened in L.A. and Davis had had its own version of it essentially, um, without going into all the details. And I wanted to, to write about I think it was kind of a, 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 a where is he now and what have we learned in the five years since this particular thing happened um locally and i pitched that story i I wrote that story and i think that was kind of like my foothold or my first step toward just moving out of sports and into into news there um and you know at some point as happens at small town papers uh turnover is pretty high and the city hall reporter had moved on and i said i want i want to move over and they said sure so it was, it was pretty much as simple as that. Um, so when I'm, when I get to the end of my time in Davis, I've, I've kind of like, and this is the the thing with me, like, I'll just do something until I feel like I, I don't feel like doing it anymore. Like this, I'm not planning ahead the next step until I actually hit that fork in the road. And at some point, um, I was like, okay, I think I've been doing this long enough. And I've been in this town and this newspaper long enough. And I started looking around and I had a friend who'd, uh, gone from Davis to the Ventura County star down in Southern California. Um, spent tours between Santa Barbara and LA. And, uh, he had let me know when there was an opening there. So I applied there, moved there and spent two years at the Ventura County star real quick. Um, So you wrote the,
0: the Rodney King Davis story, um, uh, and and that got pitched and you wrote that. And there was some purpose there for you fulfillment there of telling a story that
1: needed to be told. Telling a story that that felt more meaningful, and you know that ran across the top of a one of, of the paper I think that day, and um that was more in depth, and uh just yeah, I, I I remember feeling pretty proud of of that. You know, it's yeah, there's there's a little bit of a stigma, you know, probably still to this day of, of you know if you cover sports, you know, newspapers that was uh, the joke is always it's the toy department, and even though sports journalism has come a, a long long way since the days when that that term was coined, um, there's probably always a little bit of that. I mean, look, there's, there's phenomenal journalism being done, investigative journalism, uh, and, uh, you know, lo- you know, you know, deep dives of all kinds that are done in the sports realm. Um, so it's not the toy department anymore and shouldn't be regarded that way. But certainly at that time, that was still a little bit of the feeling in my own head was, you know, is, is this meaningful enough? Um, is this the way to, to really spend my career?
0: So you make the move down, down to Southern California and walk me through that.
1: Yeah. So I get the job at the Ventura County star. Um, I'm on a team of people covering, you know, the various cities within Ventura County. And so I spent a little time covering a couple of different cities and, um, you know, in that County. So it was, it was the same kind of thing I was doing at Davis, essentially city hall type coverage, local community coverage. Um, and, uh, you know the, the the most critical point of, of that two year span being that that's where i met my wife uh so uh who was also a reporter at the Ventura County Star um and you know other than that you know, like th- those two years went by you know pretty quickly um it it was kind of an inter- intermediary period for me uh in terms of the career because i never quite uh felt as passionate about covering the city of Thousand Oaks uh, as I did about covering the city of Davis, where I had kind of set some of my own roots a little bit. And I was, felt like I was pretty in tune with this small town. and had a, an idea of what the pulse was. And, and again, it was a really politically active place. And so everything that I wrote there had immediate, uh, resonance. Like there was, you know, pe- people like combed through and, and, cr- you know, scrutinized every comma. And so I never felt the same, um, sense of, of, uh, you know, I don't know. It just it, it never felt as meaningful as uh, um, I don't know. Just the, the connection wasn't there. So the Ventura, the Ventura experience was was a little different.
0: You're hitting on something that I never have really thought about. But I'm obsessed with like motivation or like what what really gets people going. And a lot of people talk about passion and follow your passion. Billy Joel was our commencement speaker uh, when I graduated college, and wow. and that was interesting. Um, and all, all he kept saying was do what you love and love what you do. Like that was basically what he talked about. And I think there's value in following passion. Um, but I think the other piece that often doesn't get, uh, talked about is purpose. And, uh, you know, when you can combine passion with purpose, um, and have purpose in what you're doing, and even for the athletes that I work with, it's like, okay, you're passionate about soccer or you're passionate about, uh, a sport great, but what's the purpose, you know? And, and <laughs> yeah. like, I think the great, the great athletes that I work with or the really successful people that I talk to, it's like, they have passion. Don't get me wrong, but there's also a purpose. And by the way, that purpose can be providing for my family. That purpose can be, um, making the world a better place. That purpose can be, uh, feeling like I'm putting in a good day's work. I'm, I'm not judging what your purpose is, but there should be intention or purpose to what you're doing and if you can combine that with passion that's super powerful but i think often we we miss the mark because we just say oh follow your passion or or do what makes you happy and like honestly for a lot of kids growing up today it's video games right like <laughs> i just love playing video games and and while gaming has become a sport and it's growing there's only so many <laughs> spots on those game on those gaming opportunities kind of like sports is and like if i just followed my passion then i would still be trying to be a professional basketball player when you know i couldn't make my varsity basketball high school team so you know i I think purpose and passion and 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 if you can mix those two, that's what i'm hearing from you is like when you have purpose and passion uh that's a beautiful cocktail so um keep 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 us keep us rolling here and uh keep, keep running through your stops
1: so while I'm while I'm working at the at the Star, um, I got a call one day from my uh, former sports editor at the Davis Enterprise, uh, Mike Anastasi. At this point, Mike has become the sports editor at the Los Angeles Daily News, and he's calling to let me know that Mark Stein, at t- at the time their Laker beat writer, had taken a job at the Dallas Morning News. Your listeners will know Mark Stein, of course, of ESPN, uh, one of the great NBA reporters around, and. Uh, I didn't know Mark at the time. Um, and at this point I've also been out of sports for a few years, but you know, Mike and I had, you know, kept up a friendship. Um, and he calls to say, look, there's this, this job open. Would you ever consider going back to sports again? I think you'd be great covering the Lakers. And it was funny because, you know, at that, at that moment, I had put sports so far in my rear view mirror. I really didn't think I was ever going back to it. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I'd convinced myself, you know, sports doesn't matter. This is not what's important in the world. And, uh, you know, even covering news on a small scale of covering local city hall, you know, this, that's, that's people's most direct connection to their government is, is city hall, especially in a smaller town. And so to me, that was, had a lot more resonance, uh, at that time. And, um, I, you know, there, there were people literally laughing at me as, as I got off the phone, um, I had some friends over and they were saying like, why is this even a question? Of course you should go do this.
0: It's the freaking Lakers. <laughs>
1: yeah. And they, they had just so, and they're just toward the end or just gotten through season one of Shaq and Kobe. Like they're this is in 1997. So they had, you know, they'd acquired those guys in the summer of 96 and, um, so yeah, I was, I was being a little dense, uh, at that moment, but I, I did, I, I, I thought, you know what, I, have picked this other direction. This is what I want to do. You had um, purpose,
0: you had purpose in that other direction and, and right. you know, meaning. And, yeah. But, but it's but the significantly,
1: <laughs> significantly, I wasn't quite as enthralled with covering Thousand Oaks or Camarillo or these other towns as I had been covering the city of Davis. And so I think that probably opened the door a little bit. Um, and so Mike says, you know, you should come talk. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I, I owed it to myself to at least go check it out and, and, and kick this around. Uh, Mike not wanting this to be a, uh, you know, a, an issue of, of you know, pseudo nepotism or whatever. Uh, he says, look, I'm going to bring you through the door, but you're not going to interview with me. You're going to interview with the other sports editors and with the executive editor of the paper and all these other folks. And, you know, they know that you're my friend, uh, but, uh, you know, you got to sell yourself to them. Um So I did. I went through that process and I got the offer and I thought, you know, yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta try this. And I was, you know, it was a little, a little freaky at the time because not only had I been out of sports for a few years, but, you know, as you know, to this point, my passion in terms of sports as a kid, as a fan was the NFL was the 49ers. It was not the NBA and, you know, I grew up on the Warriors and, and, you know, paid attention, but was never as much into basketball as I was into football. Um, And so there was a lot to learn very quickly. And uh, that was obviously a prime beat, too. And I think there was probably some resentments, too, uh, with other people who had wanted that job. Um, It's fascinating to me that you talked about
0: the only regret about going to UC Davis, maybe not the only, but the regret that you talked about was not the education, but the network. And yet, you got an opportunity because you went that route. And Once again, I just want to bookmark that because I think we think of network as, like, something that is very formal. Like, you go to a networking event, and you go – you have to network with people. And, like, I think about how I met you. I met you at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference because we had someone mutual that we were talking to, and we just sparked up a conversation. It wasn't – I mean, that's a conference, so it's a little formal, but it wasn't like we went to some – you know, get together at the conference where we're exchanging cards. And, you know, it's really right. just building relationships, the human old fashioned way and uh, finding interest in people and developing relationship. And then that relationship opened a door for you. And then obviously you kicked down the door. Um, so, so tell me about covering the Lakers and, and, and look, like this is the type of thing. I was at the Staples center last night at the Clippers game and uh, I'm, outside the Staples Center and the statues by the statues where there's Wayne Gretzky, Kareem magic. And my friend said to me, they're putting a Shaq statue (laughs) up on like the rafters and he's going to be like dunking on it. And I jokingly said to him, I go, Oh, so are they going to put the Kobe statue on the complete other side of the, of the arena? And so, uh, I want to just, you know, get a little bit of your perspective on, uh, relationships, dynamics, uh, team cohesion, or, and or lack thereof, and just anything that you learned in your experience. But I also want to know the growth that you had to take on coming from a football mindset, let's just call it, to being with some of the brightest basketball minds of all time.
1: Yeah, by the way, that, uh, those, those statues, they should just put Shaq and Kobe, not apart, they should put them together, but with the boxing gloves on uh, that you and your brother grew up with and they should just be like fighting each other and, and have that be like their immortalized uh, image in front of Staples. Um, I,
0: by the way, for, if, if, if we're really having boxing, right, like, and I'm thinking I have that image in my head now and I'm seeing like who's going to win that <coughs> fight and like obviously Shaq is in a different weight class. So, but if we go pound for pound... Yeah, no, I think I think I'm I'm running with Kobe on that. Like I think if we had to slim Shaq down and be like, dude, you now have to fight six foot six, two hundred, twenty pound, whatever Kobe was, uh yeah. I have some images in my head. But um all right, so go ahead, tell me about the experience uh with, well with the Lakers.
1: I, I, I tried to wade in um with with uh I I would say I was I I waited in very um Modestly but assertively. Um, I knew that I was in an environment that I didn't know. I knew that I didn't know the um, just the. I didn't, I didn't know where these all these arenas were. You know, I'd never been to most of these cities. I didn't know what the routine was. When are the players available? When do you go in the locker room? When do you not? And there's all these unwritten rules, or just kind of, um, you know, the routines of, of how you, you know, when you, when you get the coach, and kind of, you know, there's there's not a pecking order among reporters, but still, there's certainly a way to wade into these these media scrums without stepping on toes, without. You know, pissing people off, but still getting your own work done. And so, I just—I think I went in uh, feeling very much like an observer for at least the first couple of weeks, and just learning from the guys who were around me. Scott Howard Cooper, who was the LA Times uh, Laker beat writer, who's you know phenomenal and as professional as they come, and who was great to me and, and taught me a lot along the way, and, and became a good friend. Um, and, and just a lot of the other veterans who were around. You, you you listen and you watch and you see how they ask questions and what. They're asking about and follow-ups, and because it's different, it's different covering uh, a professional basketball team than it is covering uh, city hall in a small town or covering just about anything else. I mean, there there are common uh, um, methods and techniques to reporting and writing on just about anything, and a great reporter can cover anything. Really, that's that's uh, truly the case. You don't necessarily have to be an expert in what you're covering; you just have to be really good at finding the right answers picking up on themes uh reading people's uh body language and expressions and tone and just kind of getting a feel for your your environment and the people that you're covering because all these things come down to the, the people anyway so um so I just watched and listened a lot. And then I, I, I picked those things up and then I, I got to learn about like, you know, signing up for the Marriott rewards program, uh, because are am going to be traveling a lot and, um, and figuring out which cities to rent a car in. And, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that just like basic, um, you know, boring stuff. That's, that's like this, you know, without it, you can't do the job. Uh, you, you need to know how to travel. Um, so there's just a lot of that. And, and then, you know, uh, getting to know the players um, and just a feel for the rhythms of a team. And um, you know, so that, that was, you know, especially year one or even the first two years, I'd say, it was a lot of just learning as I go. And then the, the assertiveness part of it, it was modesty was listening and, and, and learning and watching how the experienced folks did it, how the great ones did it. And then the assertiveness was like learning, okay, I, I can't be a passive observer here. I've got my own job to do and you have to pursue your own storylines and you know, you, you can't be a shrinking violet on these, these beats, you have to be in it. And so as soon as I had a, a you know, a, a certain minimal comfort level, I just started wading into it and you make your mistakes. And sometimes you ask stupid questions and sometimes player snaps at you and, you know, whatever. And you just, you just deal with it. You get through it and, um, you, uh, you know, you just, just kind of evolve as you go. There's, there's no science to reporting at all. There's no science to covering a beat. There's, there's, there are some things that are right and wrong. There are some, some unwritten rules and things, but, um, you, you just have to do it and you just have to make your mistakes and you just have to, you know, um, you know, just, just keep moving forward and, and see where it leads you.
0: As you look back on that
1: time, is
0: there a story that was your favorite story or that, that you were, that you found interesting?
1: Oh man, it's a long time ago now. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's hard to remember. I mean, um, there's, you know, there's, there's all kinds of just little things um, along the way. I mean, I, one of the first memorable stories I did was just, you know, the, the basic straightforward feature on Rick Fox and the beginnings of his acting career. And he was, you know, on Oz on HBO at that time.
0: Yeah. Because uh, I'm thinking, so obviously you can go to Shaq, Kobe, Phil, but I'm thinking about like Luke Walton. I'm thinking about, uh, and, and correct me if my timeline's wrong or right here, but like, I'm thinking of guys like Derek Fisher. I mean, they, yep. Rick, I actually thought of Rick Fox before you mentioned his name. Like there are other guys, uh, that were part of those, those years that are seemingly people that I'd want on this podcast. Um, so, you know, yeah. So like Rick Fox, what, what, what was interesting about that in his pursuit of, of acting? And he also does have a face for TV, uh, but that's not neither here nor there.
1: (laughs) Uh, I think it was just um, I was looking for a good story to do right out of the gate um, just to kind of, um, you know, I don't know if it was make a mark or whatever. I just I wanted to find something that was that was uh, interesting and uh, was was not just about the typical like Rick had just signed there. He had just come to the Lakers and so he was still pretty new to them. So the idea of Rick Fox. Coming to the Lakers, pursuing his acting career, um, took a lot less money to to come to the Lakers um, and it was just a, it was just a fun thing to talk about that was not necessarily about the basketball it was about the person and, and those have always been the best stories um, are about the personalities and about uh, you know the relationships within the game um, that to me have always been more interesting than the x's and O's and there, there are a lot of people out there who have phenomenal. X and O work. That's never been, um, you know, my my um, my strongest interest. Uh, you know, the game is is interesting uh, in its in its granular fundamentals, but uh, it's it's the people and, and the personalities and the, the drama of the game that I think, uh, and that applies to all sports, um, that made me a fan of that and that have driven, I think, my writing. Um, so, but yeah, you, know, you named a bunch of you know a few of the guys there, but like. You know, Shaq and Kobe, those are the guys you had to go to. And sometimes they were the best interviews on a given day. Um, unfortunately, usually when they were fighting with each other. But, you know, guys like Rick Fox and Derek Fisher and Robert Ory, Ron Harper, Horace Grant, uh, Brian Shaw, those are the guys who carried the day for us as reporters because those are the guys, all those guys are really smart and uh, had a way of putting things in perspective, um, had experiences to draw on, and had, uh, they were all. Um, I think they all had, uh, I think what people in your uh, industry would call emotional intelligence. Uh, uh, they, they were guys who understood the dynamics of the team and their teammates and were great at analyzing what was going on at any given time within that team. Because again, as much as the X's and O's matter, uh, chemistry is so huge in basketball that it's, it's those relationships and, and the kind of the rhythms of a team that are, uh, I think primary. And, and that was, you know, I think what, um, defined my coverage in the seven years I covered them was so you,
0: uh, you you have you have such an interesting perspective and it's one of the reasons I, I really wanted to chat with you because you get to really sit and watch these guys so here's what I want to do with you I want to just do a, a little fun thing I just thought of it but for each of those guys I just want you to give me one word to describe them because I think of <laughs> a, I think of a Robert Ori and I'm going to only give you one word, which is probably hard for for a writer but I think hmm. of a guy like Robert Ori and we'll start with him like here is one of the most clutch athletes of all time. And when your name is Big Shot Bob, like, you know, how many rings did he end up winning? And and not just winning, but like impacting. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. So, six, six, I believe.
0: Like, like, that's a guy who for me in my world, I'm like, dude, tell me about Ori. So give yeah. me one word and I'll just, I'll rapid fire some of those guys that you mentioned. So give me a word to describe Ori.
1: Uh, cool, I guess. Rob's just supremely cool.
0: Ron Harper. Um Blunt. Derek Fisher.
1: Presidential. Rick Fox. Um uh, Grounded. Horace Grant. Uh Warm. Kobe. <laughs> so many words. <laughs> um Ambitious. Shaq. Playful.
0: Awesome. That was fun. Did I miss any other player?
1: Um, Brian you know, Shaw. Brian, Bri- yeah, Brian Shaw. Um, uh, you know, it, like a lot of them, I just, I, I when I think of Brian, I, I think of words like uh, leader or leadership. Um, you know, uh, just bright. Um, but, but like I say, all, almost all those guys. The veterans they brought in, that, you know, and, it, you know, Derek Fisher wasn't a veteran when he got there. He was, you know, he was a rookie, uh, same class as Kobe. But um, that team, you know, this is why some franchises succeed better than others. And people can say, oh, you got Shaq and Kobe. you got to have the right guys around them. And they had the right guys. And they did a phenomenal job, Jerry West, Mitch Kupchak, and the rest of them identifying, like, these smart um, just uh, – I I, I keep coming back to grounded. These were players who had great perspective about themselves and about the environment they were in, you know, didn't matter what they had done before. Like they understood what their role there was. um, Character, right? Character. Character. Yeah. They were just high character, high intelligence individuals.
0: Um, So like, all right, now you're in my space. So I'm at the MLS combine and helping, a team interview players to figure out who they want to draft. And I've done the same thing at the NBA combine. And look, no one's going to say you don't need talent to play at those levels. Of course you do. And I'm not even a big fan of saying like, you know, uh, character is is more important than talent. I'm not getting into all that, but you look at all of those guys and their success in sport, in the NBA as a player is just the beginning. I mean, I don't know for a fact what Horace Grant is up to, but I know Brian Shaw has been a head coach. I know Derek Fisher has been a head coach and has done other things. I know, um, you know, uh, Rick Fox is still acting and doing, so like you, you go into it and it's like, no, these people have created a formula for success in their life. And maybe it's based on work ethic. Maybe it's emotional intelligence. Maybe it's on this idea of I'm going to constantly grow and improve. Maybe it's competitiveness. But that's the stuff where the traits in sports do apply to life. And that's why we play sports as youngsters because it it should help us not just reveal character but develop character within ourselves. And, um, you know, like you smiled and said with Kobe, like um, there's not one word. He's dynamic and like um, – You know, that would have and, been a good word too. <laughs> right? Like he, so I think we often try to say it's really simple, like Billy Joel, love what you do and do what you love, but it's not. Yeah. It's it's have character in what you're doing. Uh yeah. develop yourself. And that is the long run. That's the long play. The short play is like, you know, I am going to cheat or I am going to um you know uh go out and party instead of and mispractice. Like, those are short plays versus long plays. And those guys that you all described had a good understanding of the long play. And it's amazing to think, like, I'm thinking in my head about all of those guys. They had long freaking careers. Like, I don't think there's any doubt that Derek Fisher fulfilled his potential. I don't think any doubt that Brian Shaw or Horace Grant, um, They people call them pros, but it's because those guys, Von Harper, those guys fulfilled their potential. And oh, by the way, so did Kobe and Shaq. Um, yes. So when your stars are also have an element of that, that's when you win multiple championships. So,
1: Well, and, and to the point you made, um, I've, I've said this before, and if I were still working in LA, this is a story I think I would have done at some point, but I don't know that there's been a team, and by team, you know, you got to take about a five-year, six, seven-year span here maybe. Um, it's got to be kind of an era because teams, of course, change out every year, but I don't know if there's a team that you could find that has placed so many guys in coaching and broadcasting. Um, from that team alone... You know, and, and Luke Walton got there maybe a year or so before I left L.A. But Luke, of course, is, is a head coach now. Derek Fisher was a head coach briefly. Um, didn't work out so well, but he was also president of the Players Union. Um, and, and he's on TV now. We'll see him back, I think, in the league before too long. Uh, Teron Liu, uh, you know, key, key role player for them. and uh, Fulfills you know, potential. The, right? Yeah, fulfills potential. Mark Madsen, and right? As a head coach. Mark Matson's an assistant coach. Um, Brian Shaw has been a head coach and, and an assistant coach and is again uh, on the bench now with the Lakers with Luke and Robert Ory has been a, uh, a, a part of their uh, broadcast team in LA in the studio there um, Rick Fox with NBA TV um, I, I'm probably missing guys I mean there's you know and, and, and a bunch of them who could have been Greg Foster who was a backup center on one of those teams is, is coaching with the Milwaukee Bucks um, those, those former Lakers from those teams that I covered are everywhere still now around the league, and I don't know that you could find another franchise that, in a five, six, seven-year span. I mean, I know the Spurs are constantly spinning off coaches and, and front office guys, but th- this, from a from a limited span of time, has produced so many guys who are still in the game as either broadcasters or coaches, and those are both positions that require you to be uh, have to have great communication skills, to be a thinker, uh, uh, to just be just generally sharp. Um, and analytical, and that speaks well again of, of how they identified those guys when they when they acquired them.
0: Yeah, and you go back to that passion and purpose piece. Like these guys are basketball guys. Like people say, Rick Fox. Oh, he's doing all these things. Like, oh, Rick Fox is still on NBA TV and still, uh, you know, doing basketball stuff. Like just because he has another interest doesn't mean he's not ridiculously passionate about basketball as well. And I think yeah. that's a misconception that we often make. We're like, oh, this guy is off doing, you know music or this, I'm like, we're not robots. Like, and actually it's healthy to have other things that you can pursue that you're also passionate about. And I think it's one of the things that makes Kobe interesting is like, Kobe was so obsessed with basketball. No one would ever doubt that, but he also has this side that loves writing and loves fiction and loves, you know, he has this creative side. And interestingly enough, the guy who seemingly was the most obsessed with basketball might be the one of all of those guys Who's not actually going to work in basketball? Um, so there's some really good stuff to chew on. We could spend the rest of the podcast on that, but I want to move it along. So t- take me from your journey from LA to New York and 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 how that transpires and and just walk me through that.
1: Uh, so there was you know a couple of moments during that seven years in LA that I thought you know. You know, maybe I've, I've done enough with with this Laker team. Um, you know, I was at the LA Daily News, not the LA Times, so I was at the the smaller of the LA papers, and you know, there's certain limitations that were built in there. And you know, uh, but uh, you know, covering the team was obviously fascinating and, and mostly fun. Um, and I lived two blocks from the beach in Hermosa Beach, and so there was no real urgency to to leave there. But some opportunities that came along here and there, but it wasn't the right thing at the right time. Um, but then there was a period of time there where the New York times had a couple people leave going off to the Washington post and DSPN and other places. And I knew there were openings and I had friends there who had said, you know, you should, uh, you should give us a look. So, um, you know, the, the quick version there, um, I, you know, applied there, I think missed once. Um, I think I lost out to Lee Jenkins actually, um, who's now at sports illustrated and again, one of the most talented people in our industry. Um, I think he got the job, the first one I had applied for. And the next year they, they brought me in and, uh, I went through like the full, uh, times treatment, like two solid days of just marathon interviews with them, uh, with like every editor in the building, it felt like, um, so that was, that process alone was fascinating, but yeah, so they offered me the job. This is in 2004 and, uh, and I made the jump first time I'd, you know, ever left California, uh, in ter- just, you know, from, you know, living, like I I'd traveled obviously, but I'd never lived anywhere but California. So it was a, it was a big leap, uh, for, for my wife and I, uh, you know, who's, she, you know, she's also a California native, but, um, we were, just excited as hell to, to go check out New York and we're both city people at heart, even though we both grew up in California suburbs. And, um, so there were all kinds of aspects to it that were, that were really, um, uh, just, uh, exciting. And, and, uh, you know, the, 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 job was obviously a huge, huge part of that, but also I think just the life change and, and exploring somewhere new, um, was, was really attractive at that time. Um, the, the, the biggest thing, you know, memory from that whole, period of time was that, uh, the times had indicated to me after my brief first interview earlier in the year, they indicated to me like in April or something, Hey, we want to bring you out for this, this two day interview process. And I was told by some friends, like when they ask you to come out that, and they're paying for that, that means that they actually already have decided they want to hire you. You just have to go out and then basically just not screw up. Um, and so I knew at that moment that I was probably getting the job, but the Lakers were about to make this playoff run. This is the year they're going to the finals against Detroit. And so I couldn't go out to, to New York to go through the two-day process until the Lakers were out. And the sports editor, Tom Jolly, had told me, look, don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen in the meantime. We'll wait on you. But as soon as you've got the, the time to come out, probably after the playoffs, then let's do it. So the Lakers get to uh, this point in the conference finals where they're down, uh, I think it was 0-2, and are about to go down 0-3, and that's when Derek Fisher hits that point four shot uh, on the catch-and-shoot inbounds play, um, and the Lakers end up winning. You know, they may have been down 2-1 at that point. I can't remember if that was Game 3 or Game 4, but they, the, the Lakers go from being down 2-zip to the Spurs to winning four in a row and going to the finals and delaying my ability to go to New York and finish this interview process for another couple of weeks, and it stressed yes. me out to thanks, no Derek end. Thanks,
0: Derek Fisher. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks,
1: Fish. Thanks, Fish. I mean, it's funny, too, you know, I've had this conversation with Rick Fox back in in, earlier in that era when I said, look, it's nothing, it's nothing personal, but you know, the sooner you guys are out each year, the sooner I get to like, you know, kind of check out and, you know, go on vacation and stuff. So that
0: actually is a question I had. I just want to jump in. When you're, when you're, when you're on the beat and this is something as, as an outsider that we don't know, is there like, you got to experience championships, (laughs) the champagne and all that. Is there? Do you ever feel a part of that? Do you ever celebrate with them when you're covering the beat? Like, do you feel pride in it, or is it just even?
1: No, I mean, there's there's people need to understand this, and I think a lot of fans uh, don't um, even to this day, despite social media and all the other ways we have of communicating with them, that we are not part of the team, uh, and I'm not emotionally attached to anything that I'm covering. Um, in fact, I've never been a more emotionally detached from sports, period. Than I, than I am as a as an NBA beat writer. Um, I don't care. Uh, I've, I've had this in my bio on Twitter at times. The the phrase, it's not my job to care. It's not. I don't care who wins. I don't care who loses. Um, there's there's a human element here where there are players that I, I've gotten to know and, and like, or coaches, and so there's some part of me that you know, hey, I'd like to see that guy succeed, but his his Failures are not my failures and his successes are not my successes. and I can be happy for him just like I'd be happy for anybody, but I'm not caught up in, there's no emotional investment. There just isn't. And now there are moments uh, when the Lakers lost the finals that year to Detroit and I walk in the locker room and Carl Malone is in tears. Carl Malone, one of the biggest, baddest people, you know, like (laughs) just a badass Um, and one of the all-time greats and a guy I had immense respect for and who I got to know in that one year he was with the Lakers and I got to like him a lot and this was his one chance at a championship and he knew it and he knew it was never coming back and he's sitting there in tears and I like yeah I felt on a human level for Carl Malone at that moment Um, I didn't you know I wasn't worried for Shaq or Kobe the other guys I've been covering they had their 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 rings by that point Um, but it doesn't bother me but I felt for Carl Malone Um, so that's, that's the distinction you have to draw. And, you know, look, there are people who grew up covering or grew up rooting for certain teams that who then ended up covering the teams in their hometown they grew up on and they'll go one of two ways. Some of them, I think still hold on to some of that fandom and have some part of them that are still happy for that team. And you might even see it seep in here and there. Like there is some Homerism in the business that you can see at times. Um, but I think more often than not, if you grew up, you know, as a, a huge you know Sixer fan, and then you would have covered the Sixers. More often than not, the the the, the fan part of you just dies. Like, you have to kill them off. You can't you can't hold on to that. You're not there to to be advocating or to be rooting or to have an emotional investment. You're there to cover the team through thick and thin. And so, no, when they won a championship, there's a couple guys I could be happy for. And it's and it's more fun to be in a winning environment sometimes than a losing environment. Uh, cause I covered a lot of losing Knicks teams and it's, it, it can be, you know, that, that atmosphere is so uh, depressing that eventually it can, it can affect you just, just by osmosis. But I don't care that the Knicks are losing. I care that I have to deal with all these grumpy ass people in the locker room. Uh, and, you know, and the fact that there's going to be, you know, five more firings the next day.
0: It's uh, one of the people I've interviewed is Steve Buckants, who's the Washington Wizards play-by-play guy, who's also my cousin. So uh, oh. you've, <laughs> take, take that as you respond to this. But, uh, you know, Steve is a complete Homer. He grew up in Washington. Like, uh, I feel for Steve because the bullets slash wizards, um, which the bullets who he grew up on, who were successful, are not the bullets that he covered in the nineties and the wizards that he's covered. And they have, you know, not, not won too much. Um, but you can hear the pride and the Homerism in his voice and so I guess play by play is also different than covering a beat, where your job is to report and your job is to um have the pulse of the team, and his job is to you know see what's in front of him uh, right then and there, and probably exude some energy and excitement and enthusiasm um so it's just interesting talking to him and then getting your perspective uh, as someone who is maybe more behind the scenes. So I want to keep moving the ball forward unless you have anything else to
1: say about that. Um, no, it it is, it is different too, by the way, like a beat writer, you know, working for a newspaper or or another outlet, uh, is different than a a team broadcaster. Team broadcasters are paid by the team. They are, they travel with the team. They are an extension to to, it from the, you know, of the team. That doesn't mean that they're all homers necessarily. Um, but there's their job is not the same in the first place. So it's it's I think it's fine that, you know, Steve Buckhans' experience covering the wizards as a broadcaster is, is gonna be much different than mine as a Laker or Nick B writer.
0: Absolutely. So take me to New York and and now you're 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 at it sounds like the dream spot for you or the pinnacle uh, for a sports journalist. And uh walk me through that and that experience and, and, and being there.
1: Um Working for the Times was, you know, one of the great experiences and great, I'd say, even great honors of my life. Like I, that that nine years um, remains, you know, to this day to be um, just a, a great uh, point of pride and a lot of great memories and worked with some just in, incredibly talented and, and really smart people. Uh, I've said that working for the Times is it's this strange uh, experience where its it's simultaneously. Um, humbling and an ego boost, because you know, the ego boost is you you make phone calls and you say, hi, it's Howard Beck from the New York Times. And there's like no greater feeling than that. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's a very powerful feeling to have that behind your name. Um, and at the same time, you see what's in the newspaper every day and what people, you know, what your, your colleagues are doing, um, covering wars and Covering, uh, you know, government scandals and you know, uh, doing these incredibly important investigations. And there's the humbling part, like, oh yeah, I'm at the Times, but you know, <laughs> what I do is is not even on the same scale as as what these folks are doing. So um, it's uh, it's an interesting experience. Um, but uh, loved working there, covering the Knicks. Um, it's funny, just as I mentioned earlier about how covering Davis City Hall was a much different experience than covering like Thousand Oaks City Hall and all of a sudden you realize you know it's the same beat it's the same idea but it's not the same covering the Lakers those seven years nothing like covering the Knicks Lakers almost literally a mom and pop operation Um, you basically know everybody who's running the show there Uh, they're pretty I don't want to say necessarily open, nobody's that open, but certainly a much more open environment and more uh, warm and welcoming environment than walking into Madison Square Garden, which you know, the Knicks are part of the garden. The garden is part of cable vision at that time. And it's just this massive, uh just faceless corporation. I mean there is a face. It's James Dolan and nobody wants to see that face. But um but it's 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 this very corporate cold environment. Um, people there are generally not very happy. Um, everybody is walking on eggshells all the time. Um, and it's, you know, one of the most dysfunctional franchises in sports. That's not just one person's opinion. That's kind of documented, you know, fact over more than, you know, a decade at this point. So, um, it was much different. Um, it was, you know, there was, it was still, you know, and it's an ad- still an enjoyable job and covering the Knicks was fascinating. And there were certainly some interesting personalities along the way. But, you know, on balance, was it more enjoyable to cover the Lakers even as dysfunctional as they could be, despite all the feuding and everything else? Was it more enjoyable to cover them through seven years and, and four, uh, three championships and four finals runs than the Knicks through just perpetual uh, dysfunction and idiocy? Uh, yeah, the, I'd, I'd say on balance, it was more fun covering the winning team than, than the losing team.
0: But what you're talking about now isn't just... It's not just the winning, it's the culture and uh yeah. and walking into a an environment that is a healthy environment and a uh caring environment. I when I hear mom and pop, I think of that the buses cared or um and that trickled down to Cupcheck and these guys and Phil and you know, we care. Uh and then you sort of talk about the Knicks and you know, not caring necessarily about the culture because that was fascinating when you said completely different, because in my mind I was thinking like two biggest markets, you know, LA, New York, you know, obviously different coasts, different styles, stylistic cities. But it's interesting as you talk about culturally the environment, the way things are run being night and day.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, You couldn't find. I mean, well, I I take that back. You you can find a a bigger uh, contrast because there are some other teams that I think um, in smaller markets that are even more. I think kind of almost a family uh, environment. I spent some time with the Milwaukee Bucks back in December. Like the the difference between the Bucks and the Knicks would be night and day. But even you know even these two big markets, as you point out, Lakers and Knicks, there's very little in common culturally in terms of the way they've. Uh, developed their culture as organizations. Um, and you know, these things matter, you know, when people wonder why certain teams are just perpetually awful, uh, I'm convinced now more than ever, uh, it always goes to the top. It's always about ownership. And if, uh, if your team is, you know, constantly firing coaches and firing GMs, can't get out of its own way, um you know has these have these little moments where there's a glimmer of hope and then things all of a sudden just the bottom falls out again it's it's culture it's the organization and these things almost always go all the way to the top and you know the bus family um you know and and jerry bus for most of those years and 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 jeannie and and her siblings now they have established a certain kind of, of culture around the lakers that i think has generally produced great results and 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 uh, attracted good people and let people, I think, be their best. Whereas the Knicks environment just, you know, you know I'll never forget when Mike D'Antoni got the job there and Donnie Walsh that they came in, you know, at the same time, people around the league were worried for them. I mean, I hear from people around the league saying, you know, hey, watch out for these guys because people really cared about those two guys. They're two very likable, warm uh, individuals who, uh, you know, are very popular with, uh, the, you know, their peers and, um, and people who work worked with them and they're concerned rightly for them in, in coming to the Knicks because the garden just shoes people up and spits them out. And also it takes people who are really open uh and inviting in other uh jobs, and they come to New York and all of a sudden they get all up tight and closed off because that's that's what the oppressive environment of the garden does to people. Um it, <clears throat> excuse me. And I'll say this too, just as a quick addition. This goes all the way through the organization. Um, People that I've known in many capacities there, marketing and, and uh, all, all departments, periodically somebody leaves, and then I'll see them pop up somewhere else working for some other organization, another MBA team, or some other peripheral uh, team, that you know, or peripheral uh, business that does business with the MBA, and so I'll see them somewhere, and they always seem a lot happier and a lot more open and relaxed when I see them in their next job than when I saw them working for the garden.
0: That's That stuff's... To me like probably the most interesting piece of this conversation, and uh, the guy it's just think of right, right right when you mentioned him is D'Antoni and in Houston, and I was watching a game the other day, and you know obviously they're they've had a, a good season so far, but um, so that's fascinating to me all right, so just let's let's close the loop here a little bit and so uh, I think the next I think a lot of people would just expect, oh, you, you just ride it out, you're at the times, and you know you You stay there, but, um, and you said something earlier that caught my attention, which was, you know, I was very comfortable at Davis, like, you know, wrong or right, I was there for four years, which was probably too long because I was comfortable, I enjoyed the people, the friends, Um, but you take a leap um, that, walk us through that leap.
1: Uh, so in 2013, um, I got a call, a cold call. It was an email, actually a cold email, I guess, um, from someone from Bleacher Report, which at that time I'd barely heard of. Um, I knew it as some kind of fan blog network or something. I didn't, I didn't know what it was really. Um, that's, you know, that's just an honest, you know, statement. I, well, it, I
0: knew what it was and I'll just say it because I can say it. They produced uh, junk articles Um, that were written by fanboys and it would be like top 10 players in the NBA that are whatever. And it was a lot of like junk uh, at the time. So anyway, I'll interject that, but go on.
1: So um, I just, I I honestly, I'd never clicked on one of their links. I just didn't, I wasn't familiar with the operation. Um, And it wasn't something that any of us who were, you know, in, in the business, beat writers, whatever, you know, talk about. Like it's not, I, they just weren't on my radar at all. So when I got the email, um, I wasn't sure what to make of it because it didn't actually say why he was writing. It just said, hey, I'm coming to New York. I'd like to meet. And I thought, well, maybe they're going to pitch me on writing a story about them. Um, and it ended up being, you know, a job pitch. And I went, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, and, but it was a really fascinating conversation because they had, these these great ambitions about uh, you know expanding the operation. And they were already moving into video, and they'd done a big NFL draft show that had done like bonkers traffic, and and um, you know so we start we just started talking, and I just thought you know I'm, I I had no thoughts of leaving the New York Times, and I'm fine where I am, but. Um, I don't know. Let's keep talking. Let's see where this goes. So, you know, conversation goes on with them over the course of a couple of months. In the meantime, they hire Mike Freeman, who um, had once worked at the New York Times at, uh, covering the NFL, but his his time there was before my time. We never overlapped. So I didn't really know him except uh, through mutual acquaintances. But they had hired him away from CBS, and they were making this big push, and they said they were going to hire, you know, multiple NBA writers, and they wanted me to be part of this this new team, this, this new uh, venture that they were moving into where they were going to add a, a, a layer of professional journalists, professional reporters who were out in the field. And I thought, okay, interesting, but, um, you know, I'm not sure if I, if I want to leave the New York Times uh, to, to kind of roll the dice on this. But um, the convincing case that they made, uh, for one, this place had grown at a, just an astronomical rate in terms of uh, their their the place they carved out in the marketplace, um, over a very short span. The place, uh, I think Bleach Report was founded in 2007. And so by 2013, six years in, they're already, you know, top, I don't know, five, top four at that, that point in traffic among sports websites um, and, and growing at a, at a phenomenal rate, and they'd just been bought by Turner Sports uh, about eight months earlier. So I knew that there was major media backing behind them. I don't think I would have just jumped to any old startup. That would have been, uh, you know, uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm generally risk averse. That that would been a, a leap too far. But uh, and and so here they were with this this partnership with Turner, and you know, or owned by Turner, and so there was going to be opportunities for. TV, which I know you asked earlier and I said, no, I wasn't interested in TV, but now all of a sudden at this stage of my career, you know, at 18, 20, no, at, you know, my, you know, mid forties said you know, the idea of doing something different, adding something was, was more attractive. Um, so I could do TV, I could do a lot of video, which is, you know, basically the same as TV at this point because everybody gets everything on all their devices. And so, Uh, There was that aspect. There was the fact that Bleach Report uh, was going to be partnering with SiriusXM and there was going to be a Bleach Report radio station. Maybe I could do a radio show, which I've done for the last couple of years, Um, although Bleach Report radio has has recently gone by the wayside. Um, But it was just an opportunity to expand into other areas of media. And after 20-something years of being a a writer solely, now the opportunity to spread my wings a little bit, explore some new areas, develop new skills – was attractive. And then on top of it all, there was this, you know, their pitch, a lot of it was, listen, this is the first wave of people we're bringing into in this capacity. This is who we've been as an organization. This is what we aspire to be. And we'd like you to be part of this almost like founding group of reporters who are going to help elevate this operation, this company, this endeavor. And, you know, when you think about it, you know, the, the, the great thing about being at the New York times, and I, as I early, said earlier, I, I consider it an honor the Times is an institution, and it's been around for you know what a hundred years, uh, hundred plus years, and has been, you know, is is the most uh, respected journalistic institution uh, in this country, one of the most in, in the world. And when you're there, you feel that you feel that that um, that honor and that weight and that that responsibility, um, and you also know that whatever you're contributing is this, you know, this tiny drop in the water, whether it's even on that day, because as I say, I'm in the sports section and the people up front covering Iraq and the war are are doing far more important work. But just in the grand scope of things, you know, a lot of people have, you know, you don't own this space. You, you, you borrow this space for a little while, then somebody else comes after you and, and now it's theirs. Um, so you're, you're, you're part of it and you're part of that fabric for a time. And it, and it was, and it's really meaningful, but to join an operation that was still in its relative infancy, and try to help move it somewhere. Um, those opportunities don't come along that often, and you know. Also, again, uh, at this point, the point they approached me, I'm in my mid forties. It's you know, how many more of these opportunities are going to come along? You know, um, and so it was to me the the painful part of making that decision was having to leave the Times, <laughs> something that I really hadn't contemplated doing. Um, but it was countered by the regret I thought I would feel if I didn't take this chance. Like this was, I'm not, you know, as I say, I'm not a huge risk taker. I'm not one to, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit change averse. And this was by far the most dramatic, you know, other than getting married and having, having children, uh, you know, career wise, this was by far the most dramatic decision I'd ever made for myself. And the, and the, the, I think in a lot of ways, um, the scariest just cause I was leaving, you know, the most, revered, stable, journalistic institution on the continent, um, for something that was kind of unknown. And, um, you know, but I felt I had to do it. I felt like, like there were too many good reasons not to do this. And I would regret, um, I I, I would have felt like I kind of chickened out, you know, like I didn't have enough confidence to say, Hey, I, I can do this. You know, I can, I can, uh, I can be part of this, this wave that's going to help move, please report in another direction. Um, so as you, so, so as,
0: you, as you look back, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of connecting dots, right? Like you, I go back to feeling like I, I didn't have a great network at, at UC Davis, but at the end of the day, those relationships end up helping get you back into sports. Uh, I think about the idea of like I was risk averse, yet there comes a time in your career where you have to say, fuck it, and like I'm going yeah. for it. And, yeah. you know, I, I think about one of the things that caught my attention as you told your story was there were writers along the way that you had immense respect for, whether it was Jenkins at Sports Illustrated, Mark Stein before you, uh, the writers you grew up listening to. And I think one of the things that makes you unique amongst writers that I've met is like you have an immense respect for those that came before you and not a respect in the sense of like they're your elders, but in respect and like they do great work. And I think that humility is is really strong. And that was what I caught when I first met you was it wasn't a know-it-all mindset. It was I want to learn everything mindset. I want to find out more information and I want to learn from others. And you dove into the Lakers on that beat, but you also you mentioned other people on along the journey that could show you the basic needs and fundamentals of how to do the job. And so I think that humility also probably is what helped you choose to move away from the times and say like, you know, I, I, I could be, a, I could play a different role and have a different level of importance with Bleacher Report that I can never have at a place like the times. So um, I love your story, man. I think it's, uh, it's fascinating and I think it's really helpful for others to hear hey, this is the journey and their journey will be different than than yours. But, you know, I, I think in the world we live in today, one of the things that does exist is we are broadcasters now and we are, you know, everyone's smiling and everybody has uh, the best and they're traveling. And we, uh, I think everyone tends to broadcast that instant gratification and I think the the long play of learning and growing and having mentors and learn, and you know developing processes is in sport everything I think in career everything, and you can also pinch yourself at times and and have your hand hair stick up when you enter certain places and you know this is this is special uh you know so I think that's valuable, but whenever we become complacent in that space, it can be very detrimental so Um, I want to end with this and I think I want to get your perspective on it. You know, I was talking to a head coach the other day about doing this podcast and he had mentioned, you know, well, you're a journalist now, Brian. And I, I cringed, like (laughs) severely cringed. I could think of like, like agents and journalists is where I would like, you know, cringe just because, um, but really the journalist thing for me, like um I think there there's some cringeworthiness right now with how outsiders look at the media. And um, you know, I think uh journalists in a lot of ways are are getting a, a bad rap in some ways, and in other ways I see it as um it's become a You know, you got to go hunt for stories and create your brand and, you know, the loudest voice wins and there are elements of your field that are cringeworthy. So I just wonder how you navigate those landmines and think about yourself as a journalist and um, where journalism is today and and what your state of the union would be.
1: I guess if there's one – Thing, like, there, there's a lot there. Like, we could spend the next three hours just discussing everything that that you just kind of alluded to. Um, I think if there's one thing, though, that's most important to me when discussing these issues and that, you know, listeners of this podcast, players that I cover, um, readers, everybody should understand. When we talk about the media, it, it's almost a meaningless word now. Um, media is a lot of different things. Uh, media uh, is professional journalism newspapers and T V networks, but media is also, you know, movies and HBO and it's you know its Bleacher Report and its Instagram and its its slideshows and it's Twitter and its Facebook. I mean uh the number of news sources, uh both you know, professional and amateur, both legitimate and illegitimate, um the fake news industry that's out there that's just peddling you know, you know, pure fiction for the sake of of confusing people. Um, all these things are media, so I'm sensitive to people when they judge the media or people don't like the media and this and that. They're often conflating it all. I find it all, all the time in, in in my business because a player might lash out at quote unquote the media when it might really be that he saw a bunch of mean tweets the day, the day before, most of which were probably from fans or just internet trolls. But everybody, no one can make the distinction anymore. And, you know, if I ever were in front of a group of players to try to explain what we do and why we do it and why they need to be a little discerning in in terms of their own judgment about the group of us, it's that when when we walk into the locker room after a game, that's the media. But in that group of 50 people, some of them are just, you know – A guy holding a camera who, you know, he has no particular agenda. His job is just to make sure he gets the best shot. That's not the same as the guy from the local radio station. And that's not the same from the guy who came in working on his, you know, long-term feature story, which is not the same as the guy who just wants the one great soundbite. And yes, there are people who sometimes are looking for just the controversy or something to trip you up or whatever. But that's not most of the people in the room. So my biggest... My biggest frustration is that the media is, is looked at as this, this, this kind of like amorphous blob and it's a lot of very individualized uh, specialties. Awesome. So let's
0: end with more of an uplifting thing, which is walk me just if you could summarize who you are in that locker room and what you represent, uh, <laughs> what would that be?
1: Um I, I think what I represent is uh, a. Uh, I would say I'm a reporter more than I'm a media person. Um, and even though I do TV and other things now, like I, I've never, I'm not, a, I'm not a media personality. And there are those too. And there are people who are, exist just to debate. I'm a reporter who uh, has a natural uh, curiosity about what I've just seen and. Uh, how it might uh, give me insights into uh, some broader narratives. And I mean narrative in the, in the positive sense and not the pejorative sense that people have created over the last several years. Um, I'm interested in, in, in the human element and in, uh, and in the stories that are, are behind these performances um, that I'm covering. And especially now that I'm not a daily beat writer and I'm not just cranking out game stories and, and daily briefings, um, I'm doing more in depth stuff. I'm always interested in, in the why and the how um, you know, as all reporters are anyway, but I I'm interested in great stories. I think what's always attracted me to the job from the very beginning and never more so than now, I just want to find Report on and tell great stories. Um, they don't have to be controversial necessarily. They don't have to involve superstars feuding with each other, although that obviously brings its own level of intrigue. Um, they just have to be interesting stories. Uh, and those can take on any, any number of different forms. Um, and the best ones are, are usually involving uh, just great human relationships and friendships. And, uh, you know, th- that's, that's what motivates me every day. So with that...
0: Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the Beyond the Surface podcast and I want to just summarize like what you just said because that aligns with what I'm trying to do because the whole purpose of this podcast is to get interesting stories from interesting people and uh, your story is fascinating and so hopefully I played the Howard Beck role today (laughs) decently. And I can own my reporter. Maybe I call myself a reporter for now on. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I have to go to school for Pod, that.
1: Podcasting personality.
0: <laughs> no, podcast reporter because I don't want to be a personality like
1: uh, you said. No. So, no, that, your, your, questions, your questions were great and, uh, and I, I appreciate you having me on. That was, that was fun. I, I, hope, I hope there was enough uh, interesting uh, stories there for, for your listeners.
0: Well, I never am like trying to make this a time thing because I think it needs to be organic and, and just let it roll. but. Uh, I was, I was with you all all, every step of the way. So I found it fascinating. And if others don't, sorry, (laughs) again, nothing I can do. So thank you, Howard. I appreciate it. And, uh, I know we'll talk again real soon.
1: Sounds good. Thanks, Brian.
0: Thanks, buddy. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Howard today. There's a few parts of our conversation that I just want to highlight so that you can have takeaways from our conversation. Number one, his ability to read people. Watch, listen, sit back, understand their body language, understand who they are. A lot of the coaches that we talk to on this podcast talk about that ability. Howard called it emotional intelligence, just the understanding of what someone else is doing and how that impacts your interaction with them. And that goes into Howard's ability to develop relationships and how those relationships often have paid off for him throughout his career. Number two, just having basic fundamentals, a baseline of understanding of what the job entails and how to do it really well. I thought he did a good job explaining, hey, you have to know uh, where the Marriott rewards are. You have to know how to travel to make your job seamless. I think all performers need to understand the fundamentals, the baseline stuff. It's not sexy, but a lot of times that allows us to do our job. Uh, And then number three, you know, he really talked about making mistakes and moving forward and, hey, I'm just going to put the microphone out. I'm going to learn. I'm going to try to grow. I'm going to try to improve at my craft, learn from the best in the business, and, and try to take something from them. And I think all athletes, but really all performers, we can learn from those who have walked Uh, the path before us. Doesn't mean we need to copy them verbatim, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned from those who have already had success. I think Howard grasped onto that concept. And lastly, the idea of his motivation and understanding that he had clarity in how he sees himself as a reporter and who he serves and what his job is. And understanding that he has passion for sports and passion for writing, but also the purpose to bring these stories to life and share those stories and develop relationships. And I think it's just an interesting medium for him to be able to do that. So I really appreciate Howard coming on. Uh, If you want to follow him on Twitter, he's a great follow there. It's at Howard Beck, H-O-W-A-R-D-B-E-C-K. And obviously read his stuff on Bleacher Report. He really produces some great quality content. So with that, I want to thank Howard again for coming on the Beyond the Surface podcast. And I appreciate you all listening. And we will talk again real soon.